Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. And I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Welcome back to New Books in Native American Studies. I'm Andrew Epstein. Thanks for listening to this podcast for the New Books Network. Each month, we pick a newly published work in Native American and Indigenous Studies and spend the hour speaking with the author. I'm joined today by Mishana Goman. She's the author of Mark My Words, Native Women Mapping Our Nations. It's just published from the University of Minnesota Press in conjunction with our friends at First Peoples, New Directions, and Indigenous Studies. This is a really impressive and intellectually dexterous work. Goman draws here upon literary studies on geography, gender, and native studies, women of color feminism, and her own biography as a native woman always on the move to weave a rich story about the spaces of settler colonialism and indigenous remapping through poetry and prose. I think many of these dimensions come out in our discussion, so let's get right to it. Here's Mishana Goman. Mishana Goman, welcome to New Books in Native American Studies. Thank you so much for joining me. Thanks. I'm happy to be here. Great. So today we're going to discuss your brand new book. It's called Mark My Words, Native Women Mapping Our Nations. It's from the University of Minnesota Press in conjunction with First Peoples, New Directions in Indigenous Studies. And I just want to give a quick shout out to First Peoples. I think their four-year run is... uh, coming to a close. Um, And it's been really stellar. It's been vital publishing, and they've been really great to work with. We've we've done a lot of of their books on the program. And and Mark My Words is yet another example of their, like, tremendous success and uh, ability in picking out really the best work that's going on. So thanks to them, and thanks to you. Um, And before we dive into your work here, uh, I want to start by just asking you to introduce yourself. Well, I am a. Um, I just received tenure at UCLA. Oh, congratulations, in the department! Thank you. It's, it's an exciting. It's been an exciting spring. I'm sure. Um, I also was just made vice chair of the gender studies department. They didn't waste much time. Wow. Um, and I also work in the UCLA American Indian Studies department, where I work with a lot of uh, master students in particular and uh, undergrads as well. Mm. And um, so that's that's really great research 
Research Center and Angela Riley, who runs the center there, has just been wonderful support of my work as well, the center as a whole. So I'm sure many of the the your um, listenership will be um, familiar with the UCLA American Indian Studies Research Center there. And uh, I'm Tanawanda Seneca from Upper State New York. And as I write about, and I, I'm, we may go into uh, more as we talk about my book, is that I also uh, grew up in Maine and New York and kind of all around the East Coast. Mm. So that's kind of intellectually where sure. where I am right now. But yeah. uh, I've had a long trajectory of, of uh, education and various native education communities, per se. So Wonderful. And, and what do you teach now at UCLA? Uh, well, I teach kind of a plethora of classes. Uh, my class that probably pertains the most to the, this book is Indigenous Women in State Violence class. Um, I also teach a class which is mostly women of color feminism, but really it's called knowledge. We have a knowledge uh knowledge power uh core core sets of classes in gender studies mm -hmm. so we can really i do the knowledge so i think about knowledge construction so i do a lot with indigenous studies within that but in relation to black feminism chicano feminism and kind of transnational feminism now as well and then i also teach a core class that i call uh theories of settler colonialism and the humanities for the american indian studies program and then i teach a class that's in transition now but it's on imperialism colonialism and um, uh, current concepts in relation to gender studies. You know, in, in the introduction to your book, and also in the book's second chapter, uh, you invoke the Diné poet Esther, Esther Berlin's, Berlin's notion of directional memory and mm -hmm. your own directional memory of mobility, of family and community, and in the various different places where you grew up is definitely deeply felt on, this pages, on these pages, particularly in the introduction. And I'm hoping you can talk a bit more about uh, about your upbringing and particularly how it shaped your understanding of of space and of place and, and maybe even of Indian country more broadly. Well, I I had two home bases. My father was an iron worker, which is kind of is considered a traditional uh, Iroquois or Haudenosaunee uh, job. The Haudenosaunee is comprised of the of six nations, and many of the men, um, as you know, reservation economies are not known to be robust. Uh, many of the men would work together in groups and go to the various cities or wherever they had work contracted out. So that gave me a lot of experience growing up living in different places. Um, my mother is white, so we did not live on the reservation um, when we were away because uh, particularly on my reservation, women owned the land. And so there wasn't you know, there was that in and out kind of movement all my life uh, on the reservation in Maine and then in various other places where I've lived, such as North Carolina, the white suburbs of Connecticut. So it was always very interesting because I was never I was never really alone there. I didn't have that narrative of alienation that I feel too often comes into play in American Indian studies, native studies, this narrative of constant alienation. If you don't grow up on the res for me, it was like very different uh, in terms of that mobility, because really, even though I lived in all these different racialized spaces or in all these different kind of places with their own kind of footprints, I always had my family with me. I was always like I was the oldest of all the cousins. I was the boss. I was in charge. Um, so I always had them. I always 
had that connection in that that kind of family. We had uncles would come, people would leave, people would go. So it was always that that constant vibrant place. And even in Maine, which was one of our my places of stability or twelve corners as they call it, um, even in the seventies, some of my first memories are even in that place because uh, the seventies were so um, you know vibrant with politi- political political. Um, ongoings and such, like even the Maliseet or all the, the Penobscot, Passamaquoddy, or even down from Canada, we were the halfway stop between that and Boston. So I didn't have that same narrative. So when I went started my undergraduate uh, degree at Dartmouth, um, one of the first Native books I read by a Native author, and I was I was my first year at Dartmouth, was Louise Erdrich's Love Medicine. Mm-hmm. And it was the first time something spoke to me so, so <laughs> amazingly. Mm-hmm. So that, that book kind of led me on this trajectory of thinking through these things. But even as I was reading the, you know, the great works of Native American literature and all these, these wonderful people, I, I also sensed that well, there was this dynamic or this discourse in Indian communities around res as a place of authenticity and state stability of tradition um, and that sort of element, which I'm not denying it is a place of stability in, in many ways as well. But it's also a place, especially I just got back from a trip in Tonawanda. Mm-hmm. It's also incredibly mobile and vibrant and it does change. Right. So I I. I, what I begin to recognize is this discourse of authenticity and trying to think about where does it come from? Because while my experience was very different than um, some of my Navajo friends, for instance, or or others, um, I, I begin to just think, like, how do you account for such a repressive history of colonial spatial restructuring in relation in relation to people that that uh, are made to often feel like they don't belong unless they have that stability reservation life. So I, I always sense these tensions around those particular discourses. And when I was growing up, I'm not so sure I had the cognizance of that. I, I probably, I really didn't actually. It wasn't until the first day I arrived on campus at Dartmouth, which has a strong Native community, it's very well renowned for that, that I began to realize that my history was a little different, but yet I also knew that I shared that history with other um, Iroquois or Haudenosaunee people. So I just, throughout, I began to think of the discourses that were being created in literature, in American Indian studies around these sorts of issues. Whereas I see the mobility, um, it can be, it can be negative. It can be, there can be a lot of, uh, there can be a lot of pain that comes with that through that dislocation, et cetera. But there's also a lot that can be gained through that. And there's, there's just such a, there's such a strength in the way Native people maintain their ties, even while U.S. policy is constantly trying to sever ties between people and their nation, the tribal nation. I think you know maybe one of the issues that come up is that um, when you think about self-determination, uh, you often think about autonomy and a space of autonomy, which sometimes can get lost, uh, at least most visibly, if you're if you're talking about uh, mobility, um, but. One of the things that you challenge throughout this book is this idea that there can be different forms of um, of self-determination or expression, even if you're not on the marked boundaries of what we understand, at least in the colonial mapping, to be the places where uh, Native people, you know, can d- 
determine their own lives. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that does come at a very young age, actually, yeah. to go back to the first chapter of my book. Um, I grew up with incredibly rebellious Indian family. Like mm -hmm. my, my, my relatives, uh, they moved to Maine in the mid-1960s. And my grandfather, actually, who's Anishinaabe and not um, Seneca, my grandmother's Seneca, um, and it's matrilineal, so it goes, it goes to the, the grandmother. Um, he bought this large plot of land and just kind of made his own reservation, literally with like my, our piece of land that my, was my father's is in the back and my, you know, my aunt's is in the front. And it was just like, he wanted all his children to live with him and around him. And so he did this, this particular, this particular, uh, chose this place in the middle of nowhere, kind of in, in Northern Maine where there wasn't much going on. And certainly we were the only, it was a very white community, like, I, we were the only Indians in that community and there weren't other people of color at that point in time that lived in that particular area either. So it was, it was, it, it, it became like their autonomy such as, um, and their rebelliousness about it is that they embraced that concept and they would not, you know, police, they would put no pigs on the trees <laughs> These sorts of yeah, uh, sure. rebellious nature. Yeah. Nobody really messed with them also. They're pretty tough. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, I say that, but in, and it still became, even in that, that particular area, Goleman became synonymous with Indian in, in a particular way. So it wasn't even until I got to Dartmouth that I realized that, like, who's telling me I'm not native because I'm fairly light-skinned, mm. um, that before all my life growing up, only being considered native was uh, – so that was like a element there. But um, also growing up, just I think with a lot of Haudenosaunee beliefs, like when I came back and there was that moment of disjuncture for me, like, well, what does this mean? I'm, I don't live on the res, but I have this kind of – I have this place that I that's deeply embedded and is so similar to – to these other places, I had a lot of my stories were more similar to res um, those students that came from other students who came from the res than even from other from other people as well. And I begin to wonder where the rural fits in on that, but also where does where does my deep sense of political autonomy, as you're mm -hmm. talking about, come from? And it really comes from those sets of knowledges, right? Uh, the sets of knowledges of my uncle saying, you know, people can say you're not Indian, but the only per the only time it will really matter is when you actually believe it, and that's that's the point in time where where they've won, right? It was always us against them mm. <laughs> being, being settlers. So, um, but there was also that way that um, my family also, even though they set up that particular autonomous reservation, they also had a lot of connection with Penobscot and Passamaquoddy people as well. And we're very respectful of that too. So I just wanted to put that in there yeah. as well. So, so it's not about overriding somebody else's political authority in a, in a space, but always, trying to be responsible to whatever space you're in. And I think I learned that at a very young age, probably because of that mobility that I, that I had. I feel like I could read an entire book about 12 corners and I would be absolutely fascinated. I don't know if that's, <laughs> that's coming up next perhaps, but, um, <laughs> maybe that's a tentious one. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure. I've actually just, I've been recently doing oral history and I have been taking some of the, some of the stories down. Yeah from my aunts and uncles. So, hmm. so your book here, it shares a title, uh, with a poem by Diane Shenandoah, if that's right, of the Onan Oneida nation. 
Uh, and it's a poem. It's a really moving poem uh, about the building of a, of a Kmart department store, or that's the context for it, at least, on on Haudenosaunee land that, that she recalls her people cultivating, harvesting, caring for. What was it about that poem that, that resonated for you enough that you, you wanted to invoke it uh, in your title? Mm. Well, I love that poem because I think it, that that recall, the fact that she recalls that space as this great storage pit, right? And through even even just through her her own recollection of that, it's also a recollection of women's power, right? Because women distributed the food and the resources, and so it's. Uh, for me, I'll, I'll be honest. I like the mark my words. I needed a title that fit me. And <laughs> a great title, definitely. <laughs> so, and it was also, you know, the the relationship to mark, as in cartography, to mark your place and in, in in the ground, right? And how that it kind of fit in with my whole, with the whole premise of my book is that uh, we think of geopolitical boundaries as these stable. Uh, unmoving, but also physical elements, which are, they are physical elements, right? There's definitely military on the southern border and the northern border, which is a big point I wanted to address in my book. But they're also imaginary, right? And if they're imaginary, then I feel like the the, rec- the recollection and the memory of these places are just as powerful as in imagining them into being through colonial forces. So I really like the idea of mark my words because it's sort of prophetic as well and peeks into the future of Native people. And that to me was really important and is consistently important in my research, especially as a Native feminist scholar, wanting wanting to think about how to resituate knowledge systems so that we're moving towards something that we're moving towards we're we're moving towards a future that's sustainable and a, and has Native people, not as uh, you know, what Eve Tuck calls, I, I wanted to do. Uh, I wanted to do research that suspended the damages, right? Mm. That wasn't just about the problems or the issues that we're having, um, but to really focus on that strength. And I think Mark My Words has that prophetic element to it of of thinking about what do our futures mean, and also how do we self determine as as we talked about a little bit earlier, how do we self determine those futures and I really feel the way to do that often is to remember connections that go well beyond geopolitical boundaries, federal Indian policy, and the Indian act mm-hmm. so you, you write about that that your decision to draw upon literary texts upon prose and poetry as opposed to uh, other forms of discourse more commonly scoured by historians, you know, government documents, (laughs) surveys, etc. You write, quote, that it tenders an avenue for the imaginative creation of new possibilities. I'm wondering if you can talk a bit more about about these possibilities, why literature, why poetry is a a particular fertile ground for that, and why even more so you chose to, to highlight the writing of indigenous women in particular. Mm-hmm. Well, I think women are um, in one of the aspects, and by no means do I, men also uh, imagine futures, definitely, right? Uh, there's lots of Native men who are doing very important work um, in both in all the places that I discussed. Uh, what, why I decided to highlight women and why I decided to highlight literature is because often sometimes the stories or the, the feelings that that uh, determine policy or determine law often don't 
come in, don't come into that those particular narratives as well. I I mean I can't help but but think sometimes about the the particular baby Veronica case where there's this constant um uh, absence I think of of what of uh what this means to the community while it's so concentrated on the legal. Um but there's a way that the literature itself can move beyond those boundaries can slip in and out like the way that Joy Harjo can imagine reconciliation for instance in her poem in a uh, tale um from the end of the 21st century where she where she's talking about if we can just recall that we have these relationships to each other and what are our responsibilities in those relationships to each other and how do they extend beyond these boundaries that have been fixed and mobilized by colonial settler spatialities? How, how can we look beyond them? And I always um, think of one of my favorite writers, Helena Maria Veramontes, a Chicana writer who talks about the making of Nopalitas and the making of fiction where we have to look beyond our own fences in order to see the future that we envision and want. And I feel like at many points in time, whether it's E. Pauline Johnson, Harjo, or uh, I end with Hyde Erdrich, it's about constantly trying to envision that future we want. I And I talk about this, sovereignty is one thing, or enacting our rights are one thing, but what do we want to do with those rights? How do we want to relate to each other as people? And I feel literature can really uh, begin to really unpack that as well. Hmm. So that's, that's what I feel in relation to hmm. that. Sure, Whereas, sure. you know, the BIA doctrines, uh, you know, field reports and all these are, are pretty much about the insights of the settler and not really so much about how did uh, how did these Native women thwart uh, starvation, right? That the regulation of rations, for instance, how do they thwart that or how do you thwart um you know, one of the other aspects I teach my students too, but and um, I, I talk about this in uh, Tressa Berman's work. She talks about matrifocal woman, or in that matrifocal woman, um, really sustain Native communities in particular ways through their labor, through their imagining um, alternatives to uh, wage earning systems, for instance, or any of these these sorts of elements. So that becomes a big fixture of my book and why thinking of the ways that Native women sustain communities become so important because they're not in that legal record. The legal record is more about how to unsustain Native communities in a sense. But there's all sorts of ways I feel uh, Native women's um, intellectual intellectual knowledge moves us well past well past what the legal can actually do so the the term you use um throughout this this work is remapping and you have parentheses around the term re which you know means something very different i think than say unmapping or removing or um just saying mapping or you know mapping for the first time uh, what precise meaning or meanings did you hope to communicate through that modifier of re remapping? Mm-hmm. Well, it's in parentheses largely because it doesn't just harking back to the past. I'm not saying that we take this particular spot, for instance, and we only talk about what it meant in the past. And it, it gets to some sorts of originary moment that has this authenticity carried with it, right? But that there's a particular way that the re for me uh, I attached to the mapping is is about 
we can reflect on what the past has meant, but we also have to think about the future in terms of what we want these spaces and places to mean to us as well, right? And and that's largely, for instance, I I I I just started. I just started working in Los Angeles and um, I wrote the Esther Berlin piece before I moved to LA. Uh, but since being here, I, I still feel it even more vibrant that, that, that chapter in a particular way, because I've had a chance to meet with Tomva people who are indigenous to LA. Um, my daughter goes to high school at university high school, which is near Caravanga Springs, which is a sacred Tomva site where, where it still produces uh, spring fed water. And it's a very important place and it's, and it's beautiful and it's right on that campus and it's used as a community center as well. And, so when I when I think about about LA as seen as this non-indigenous place, mm-hmm. it erases those vast histories that are so so important. And and so the the remapping there, for instance, is not just about recalling this as an important a recovery. It's beyond a recovery, right? It's also like we're, what do we want to see and envision this place to be? And there's one. And it's amazing. And the power of this one woman, this one Tomba woman has done with that cultural center is she's, uh, she's actually maintained it and she's done so much work with the grant writing to maintain it and all kinds of other aspects. But she's, um, uh, Frank's is her last name. She's just done a really, really wonderful job at, at making sure that place, uh, is that history is known. So, and it's really powerful that one woman can maintain that place. So I guess the remapping for me is also, it, it relates to the past, present and future. And it has that self-determining notion to it. That's why I like cultural geography a lot that I use in here. So Mm -hmm. it's not just a recovery of history, but it's also, uh, um, looking at our the spatialization or how we how bodies and place interact uh, along various lines, but how that can be very empowering as well. You uh, quote in this book. I, I don't have it in front of me uh, this particular moment, but in talking about remapping, you you cite Linda Tuiwa Smith, who who reminds us that the process of colonization was a process of disordering. You know, it was. Yeah. Um, and I think a lot of times, even historians, and I'm, I'm saying historians because that's the field I'm in, yeah. think about the process of colonization as this, uh, you know, this administrative state eventually comes in and, and sets about to order. And, you know, we can have yeah. this sort of like Foucauldian criticism of, of the ordering regime. But what gets missed a lot is that there was order. It's not the administrative colonial order, but it's a sense of order and maps and understanding of space that was disordered. Um, and and violently intervened on by colonialism that then uh, this remapping is, is is seeking to redress and address. Yeah, and and that's that's the aspect too because so much of that colonial administration was about not just disconnecting Indian people from their land, but Indian people from each other as well. And uh, so I really and that's the major disorder that was brought, but. It, it's also like a replacing of knowledge. I think it's um, it's uh, uh, Ferguson and Akhil Gupta who talk pretty much like colonialism's goal wasn't just to, it wasn't just to take away everything from the indigenous people, but also also to replace it, hmm. right? And I and in some ways that uh, not 
not remapping or, or thinking back and thinking forward is is letting colonialism do that particular uh, replace aspects. I think the strength of Native people to survive all the painful colonial policy that has occurred, um, you know, not so long ago, but that that the just the pain and violence of colonial policy to survive it has been a matter of maintaining the knowledge systems, um, whether it's secretly or whether it's in that directional memory that I, that I love that phrase, Esther Boleyn coins. Um, but to maintain that is really important, but also not just maintaining that knowledge system or retaining it or finding it again or learning it again, but also being responsible to it. And I guess the, the responsibility, aspect of being responsible towards those knowledges also for me is part of my native feminist praxis, which I'm very, um, I, I'm very much, uh, trying to work on in the, that particular field. So also what, what do we do now? How do we act now? How do we act responsible to the places we're in now? Right. Sure. In those histories and presence and the futures that could possibly be. So, so I want to return to, to Esther Berlin um, and talk a bit about her poetry. Um, but first, I want to talk a bit about the context in which uh, you, you visit her work. Um, she's yeah. she's writing contempt. She's a contemporary author, poet. Yes. Um, but you bring her up in the context of responding to the legacy of a of a federal Indian policy in the mid of the twentieth century, known as termination and relocation. Um, I'm hoping you can just, you know, quickly introduce us to, to that policy generally, uh, but also why you read it or how you read it as a particularly gendered spatial phenomenon. Mm-hmm. Well, in so relocation and termination uh, came about in the 1940s, 1950s. I also talk a little bit about Public Law 280 in there, which is incredibly important, especially in relation to Southern California. I'm actually learning a lot since moving here about how important that is to Southern California Indians. Um, but um, all, all three of those were more in that assimilationist era uh Towards, towards the end of it, where moving Native people off reservation into urban areas as factory work was very deeply a masculine process also as they were trying to create wage laborers and wage earners, right? And this is not also expected to be women per se, but a lot of women also moved there and became domestic workers into these urban centers. So it was also kind of about class and creating class in terms in terms of that. Now, Public Law 280 was also part of that policies, assimilationist policies as well, where the state would have power over to intervene in law and legal issues on on reservations that it had a, a contract with. And so most of the public law, 280, actually this came up once that, well, you know, not too many people are affected by it. But the the reality is that the states where public law 280 intervenes the most are those that have a high Indian population. So that also becomes a part of how we can see the state intervening in a gendered, particularly gendered way in these particular policies as well. Um, so, and I, I talk about this in the, in the book also, is that it really was about tribal destruction and removing Indians from the land and into these urban spaces in order to destroy the 
the the tribal lands. So they would they would pay them bus fare, but only bus fare to the city, not bus fare home. When many wanted to leave, um, when they arrived, oftentimes they they had family that had already left, and they wouldn't let them know where the family was. But through story and through conversation with other Indians and other mechanisms, uh, people found thwarted that whole kind of system anyway. And a lot of people actually came on their own um, because reservation economies were so poor. I think sometimes when we talk about relocation and termination, um, we don't often put it hand in hand with uh, economic tyranny um, that is being created on the reservations as well. And I think that's very, very important to address because it still exists. Um, and so that movement also uh, was seen as a closing off. And I was very struck because I was in the archive at the Newberry Library and I was reading from the um, American Indian Oral History Archives there. It was one of the first that, that actually dealt with urban relocated Indians. And there was this uh, one woman, and I address her in this chapter, um, where she where she's asked by the interviewer, she's, she's asked, um, so so do you feel cut off from your people? And she says back, we were cut off from each other. Hmm. And uh, I, that's just really profound because too often we think of Indians lost in the city and not the fact that also what gets lost is the home community as well, the reservation community. And then often there's so much mobility that went back and forth. It's not like people went to the city to stay. And I even see that. I see that now, especially more in current uh, in current times that there's so much going back and forth as well. So introduce us to, to Esther Berlin and how you came across her poetry and, and, and why it makes sense in the context of talking about uh, these particular policies. Yeah, I, I, I love her poetry because it has a sense of wry sense of humor to it and it's sort of irreverent as well. And I think a lot of the, the authors that I address in here are sort of irreverent to some of the the kind of status positions around around these things. And uh, I came across her work when I was in grad school and it really was a matter of she was she was uh, uh, she was in a film program with one of my other uh, my friend and colleague who also uh, is a filmmaker. So I, I started reading her poetry then and I just I just fell in love with that witty irreverence. I could see some of the, the Native women that I grew up in there. She has this great set of poems that aren't included in my book, but she has this great set of poems on um, on uh, Faye and I had an Aunt Faye who's pretty sassy. Uh, she's, she might be <laughs> listening to this eventually. But I have uh, just all these, all of my relatives that really just uh, spoke in a way but it also, it also, you know, opening, and I do talk about bluesing on the brown vibe where she opens with the trickster figure uh, cruising the bus stops in Oakland in that particular space, which is like a high, highly, um, was one of the relocation centers. And uh, just how that interaction where the trickster is asking the ponka and then and the other one, but it, the way she captures that imagery, it's a very visual uh, poem as well. The way she captures that, I think, is just so beautiful. And the way that that relationships are struck up among that in this place that's supposedly a place of dislocation in the city. 
right? Mm-hmm. And uh, there's a whole other element that's being built there of uh, learning about different tribal peoples, etc. Even, um, you know, it's called bluesing on the brown vibe as well. So learning about other people who are who are, uh, it, you know, living in the same spaces as Native people are. So that that becomes a very big part of what I wanted this book to address to some extent also, that while I, I do believe everywhere is an Indian space in the United States, if we can concentrate on how space-making and also uh, our relationships and responsibility to that work, then it, it doesn't make Native people isolated off to the side, either on reservations or lost in the city, but really Native people are constantly interacting with other peoples and in responsible ways and in traditional ways as well. So I just, uh, that was a very important aspect of my work. And I think that's what I really love about Esther Boleyn's work and also Joy Harjo's poetry as well, where, you know, part of what gets incorporated in their poetry is a very real presentation of what Native people are in every day, like in these very, um, you know, vibrant communities, Hmm. making relationships to other people, right? So what does that mean when we're, we're looking at sovereignty or federal Indian policy or the Indian Act? If, so. I, if I can read a, a, one line of uh, Berlin's poetry on, from her poem On Relocation um, that I found really, really wonderful. She writes, the physical is easier to achieve a boundary drawn to separate people. Navajos say no word exists establishing form to the air we breathe. Mm-hmm. And I was thinking about that, you know, the, the juxtaposition of the of air uh, and and physical boundaries um, and, and all the things that we interact with on a daily basis that transcend what we normally assume to be the fixed boundaries of maps and walls. But there's air, there's words that, that connect people. Um, what does this, that, that line in that poem on relocation uh, mean in the contexts of, of Indian communities uh, living in the aftermath of, of the relocation and termination policies? Yeah. Well, I I see that. I see that line as if we say there's separation between us and our communities and that separation will will exist. But rather, if we see the air we breathe as that constant connection back and forth between people there, I, I, I do think that's very, very powerful. And in many ways, um, that poem spoke to me, too, because as a Haudenosaunee person whose communities are on the Canadian side and the New York side, and uh, in the way from a very young age, I was taught to always understand the border as illegal and also the the border as not existing for us, in a sense. Um, I That that. All that particular line of thinking about air and air as that constant connection to wind. And we have um, Haudenosaunee people have their own stories around wind as well, right? As a connective force of the universe. Um, that becomes, I, I think, in terms of on relocation, that we got to rethink developing policies. And I say this in the book, developing policies that cut off Indian people in particular if they live in the city, right? And cut them off as not connected to those reservation communities. Um, 
And that becomes very important to try to think of fed, uh, federal Indian policy or even tribal politics as what can we institute that will keep us connecting us in the way that the air or breath or speaking does in the way that we talk to each other and relate to each other. Cause we are storied people in many sense. And I feel, I feel in relation to on relocation, that's, that's in some ways was a very profound uh, poem to get at what I wanted to think about. Right. Cause um, in each chapter of my book, I try to address kind of the present day politics and where we're at as well. And yeah, the historic moment of relocation and termination have gotten us to a certain place. And we can see that effect through the literature of these particular women. We can see that effect in the present day and the contemporary literature I address. But also, where does that point us? I, I feel like these women are kind of prophetic in trying to help us think through various policies. So since I wrote this book and thinking about the, and I teach the, the, tra- the drama or trauma around VAWA in the VAWA Act, mm-hmm. as, uh, in, and I do have a PhD student who addresses this and some very good work, Kimberly Robinson, who's Muskogee uh, Creek, that uh, cutting off Indian women, even from the VAWA Act, they get no protection under VAWA. Um, what, how can we begin to address all these moments where this particular aspects are happening? And I do address this part of my book too, like George um, Bush, the second when he was in office, wanted to cut the IHS hospitals, right, in urban centers because they weren't Indian. They weren't in Indian places, and if they wanted Indian healthcare, they had to be in Indian places. So, if we're at once saying that urban Indians aren't real Indians because they don't have authenticity of the res, but we know that sixty percent, or I think it's more than that now, it's seventy seventy percent of. Uh, Native people live off reservation because of jobs, because of the economic tyranny. Um, what does this? What does this? What does this mean to cutting off our own possibilities for healthcare, for instance, or uh, protection against domestic violence, etc.? So that that for me becomes very profound when I think think through the spatialization of Indian bodies and how it's. It's tied to these knowledge systems produced through um, colonial spatial restructuring. And just to clarify, VAWA is the the Violence Against Women Act, which ultimately did pass. Did pass. um, But with some, I I, I didn't read the full coverage of it, but there was some question as to how much protection it would actually offer um, Native women. Yeah, it, it was um, it was the worry that native tribes would be given too uh, too much autonomy was really what it was about. What which was is being the, held up? That was the reason it was even right. yes that it was like it was a special racial privilege, right. which is just a clear misunderstanding of really how the again we're back to the geopolitical boundaries mm-hmm. that a lot of what has occurred on reservation is a result of colonial mapping of jurisdictional boundaries. Right. So. That could have been a whole other chapter if <laughs> I didn't need to finish this. <laughs> sure, sure. Uh, it's hard to know when exactly to stop. But, I know. Uh, yeah. I see everything as a colonial spatial restructuring. Sure, sure. I mean, and, and as, as you mentioned earlier, this the Supreme Court case about uh, baby Veronica. I mean, there's a lot, yeah. which we, we won't even go into now because that could open up <laughs> whole other ways to think about this. Um, Joy Harjo is somebody who certainly... Um, traverses the colonial boundaries uh, that are imposed uh, or imagined. Um, and you talk about her in particularly in this, in, in this chapter. 
uh, in her work in the context of neoliberalism, uh, mm -hmm. of globalization, and, and the movements to resist it, and particularly thinking through um, what does it mean to think about local particularity while also being part and needing to address what's on the global, a global phenomenon of neoliberalism and colonization. How, do you, how are you reading Harjo's work in this context? Well, I see her as trying to, uh, in, in her poetry, her poetry speaks to, for me, it speaks to uh, possibilities of relating to other people, of seeing also what's going on in the U.S. Um, as that which extends beyond like one's tribal community, for, for instance, um, in the way that, uh, in the way that kind of oppression plays out and also having to address that and be responsible towards that element as well. Um, I, 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 I see this in my, I don't, I mean, I can't speak for Joy Harjo, but really what I wanted to get at in, in talking about neoliberalism and talking about connections to others is because we are all very much interconnected in a particular way. And, you know, I do a lot with race and ethnic studies. And as I said, as I said earlier, I teach a lot of women of color feminism, et cetera. And it's been really, I also sit on the board editorial board now for the critical ethnic studies association journal that's coming out. Mm. And so for me, it's been, how, what does it mean to be indigenous in the U S where you're constantly um, relegated as okay, it's your racial subject, but not quite, and you don't, the, you know, you don't have enough numbers there, etc., for it to really matter, etc. But I just see indigenous issues as so important to all a lot of the issues that are going on, particularly around neoliberalism, and I see this as historically always having as being the case. A lot of people talk about the black-white paradigm in the United States. And um, without land, there would be no need to be labor. But without labor, slave labor, African slave labor, then also uh, that, you know, land might not have had that same colonization process. So I see these processes completely interconnected. And I think Harjo has the ability to look back into the past as well as into the, the, the present dynamics on a global scale from that local to the, the larger process in order to think about the ways that we, we relate to each other. And I love her poetry because it's deeply personal on that level of how do we begin to relate to each other, even though we have all these differences and there's a ways, some ways in which these differences have been constructed. Right. And, and instead of seeing how they all interconnect together as well. Like I said, the way that uh, the United States is built is through slave labor and colonialism and, and both were needed or even, um, and I do talk about this as well in terms of Canada and the U S often what is, what is, you know, Canada seen as having more benevolent practices when in fact it didn't, it relied on the U S violence uh, in the 1890s in order to sustain itself as a nation. And their U.S. and Canada are constantly working in tandem 
together in relation to that. Um, but the relation to building the railroads uh, across the, and I take this up a little bit in the Almanac of the Dead chapter, but in relation to building the railroads across across the United States and across Canada, uh, that was largely Asian labor. So what does that also mean? Because that led to that expansion into the West and is deeply it's deeply tied to colonialism. So sometimes uh, what I want to do in this work, and this is why cultural geography becomes so important for me to think through is that if you look at cultural geography, you start with the place and you look at all that social interaction going on in there. And I, I think there's just so much possibility in that. And there's so much importance to indigenous voices being heard within thinking about how, how place is constructed. And uh, we often don't get that because I think the, the common narrative or, uh, around that is that uh, Native people are annihilated from place completely. Mm-hmm. And I guess that if, if I have to say one line that I want my book to be about is that Native people are always in, in place, <laughs> are in all these places across Canada and the United States and are always fighting against that erasure. You should, and you should uh, finish every declarative statement with "mark my words." They are. <laughs> I know. <laughs> um, my family would love that. <laughs> so that that actually makes me think about one of the things that I I think is so powerful about this work and in the work of of the Native women that you highlight here is that they don't, uh, so to speak, address what are for many the most apparent. Um, targets for the for the reassertion of, of native spatial understandings are the most clear vestiges of settler colonialism. And I guess what I mean is that for many uh, non-native settler people, um, most can or many can draw some association between um, the dispossession of native nations and colonialism uh, and, and let's say, the imagery of the American West or the Great Plains. Um, and but they can, but they can look at places like Los Angeles and Chicago or Wall Street, as you mentioned in the, in the closing briefly. Um, those are much harder, I think, for people to think of at all uh, as sites of ongoing settler colonialism or as places where um, Native people can reassert their own spatial understandings. Uh, but that's indeed what you're calling for in many respects: is even those places where it's most. Um, I don't know what the word would be, not erased, but uh, obscured. Mm. Yeah, and they're obscured from knowledge systems, but the the fact is there's so many people that have those knowledge systems still in, in place. Right. It's just also then it gets into the praxis part of it. Like how do we hold ourselves responsible to it? How do we catch ourselves when we're, when we're saying, Oh, that's not really native. Like in the way Esther Boleyn does in her poem, directional memory, right. That, um, I, I feel the scratches against the indigenous brothers in LA, right. That she has to also remind herself that this is a native place. This is, you know, I, I got to, unpack my own knowledge that produces some spaces as native and others as not, mm-hmm. or the border as, as, as something that's constantly going to be there. Right. And I employ this a little bit in E. Pauline Johnson's work where she says, how do you not know when another nation will not come and conquer you? Right. And so I think that there's also, uh, there's a lot to be said for how these women view the longevity of a place and the longevity of knowledge, but also the responsibility to, to act on that. And, and that's, that's, that's what I love about reading 
that particular continuity and call to responsibility for community, I think we can see from E. Pauline Johnson to Hyde Erdrich's poem that I end with in Girl in Geography class, where she's she's unpacking her own um, the her her own colonial education, right? And I, I just find that very profound. And uh, a lot of people have helped me get to that point in my life um, where I am constantly just questioning and asking, okay, if we do this, what happens here? <laughs> right? mm. So just always being critical, but I guess that that's also how it's brought up. So I imagine there are, um, I mean, as with any, um, any, any book and any academic book, um, or with an academic publisher, there, there are different potential audiences for this book. Um, whether they're native people or non-native people, men or women, settlers, et cetera. Um, I'm wondering, um, if you have sort of different, not necessarily intentions, but what you hope people, uh, who are coming at this book from different places might take away from it. Yeah. You know, the question of audience is always, was, was always a difficult one when you sit about to, you know, write an academic book. And sure. I, you know, I've always been um, very interdisciplinary and uh, I feel less schizophrenic in my work than I do perhaps in the way things get departmentalized as well. Uh, so I, 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 I see the I see the audience and and we'll see. I, I see the I see the audience like there hasn't been a lot in cultural geography that has actually addressed this. So I actually have been um my book was honored at the Association of American Geographers, which is was really wonderful because there's not that many books actually written in indigenous geography. There's a lot of really great up and coming younger scholars. So I'm really excited mm. to see their work. And there's a lot of on the ground GIS mapping that's occurring as well. Um but some of the practical or technology around mapping and indigenous space is a little different than what I'm asking for as well in my book. Uh, but I, I see that as being a potential audience and I am really excited with the ways that, uh, that, uh, some of the people coming up, uh, some of the native scholars and geography coming up is very exciting and it's very well needed in that field. And then, um, I, you know, literature is my discipline and I do a lot of close readings as you can see in the book, but I, I see it also speaking to that, but I always, I always have to have that, that tie to something that, that will make, I don't want to say, I guess, make things better mm. <laughs> or try to construct, construct something or, or help push towards various, various elements. So, um, it could just be all my life. I was told I should be a lawyer by my, my family, right? Like every good Indian girl should be a lawyer. And, uh, maybe it was my, it's, it's been my constant weaning off from, <laughs> from becoming a lawyer, uh, but having something constructing past the law, right? Or really, really trying to think about what has been that strength of Native people. And I really do find it comes in the form of story. It comes in the reform of teaching responsibility to the knowledge that gets produced through stories. Hmm. You write of, of, of Leslie Marmon Silco that um, stories are the cornerstones of political viability. Um, mm -hmm. So I've been speaking with uh, Mishana Goman, author of Mark My Words, Native Women Mapping Our Nations. It's from the University of Minnesota Press. 
Um, thank you so much for this wonderful discussion. Before I let you go, of course, I have to ask, and I know you just completed this really uh, incredible achievement, but I always like to ask what um, what you're thinking about working on next or, or, or at least what's even an inchoate idea if you were to, to write again, and you most certainly will. Will we get a book about, for instance, the history of uh, 12 Corners maybe? <laughs> I I'm not there yet. I think uh I think there's still a little tension around that. But I actually have started doing some research around that. Um but I I have two projects actually at hand. And one I was actually asked to do in uh Randolph Lewis and David Shorter's Indigenous film series. And so it will be on the spectacle of originary moments and uh looking looking at the new world by Terrence Malick. So that one is actually I am feeling pretty pretty close on that one. I can't but, wait for that. I just have, well, just sorry to interrupt you, oh, but no. that's a fascinating movie. What, what's your uh, three word assessment of it? <laughs> <laughs> oh, I guess well, if you had a three word assessment of it. I don't know if I have a three word assessment. <laughs> that was the pro- that's how I got asked to do this. Right. I had like a, a five page rant that didn't belong at all in this one. I think it was in the early form of the Esther Berlin chapter, actually. Mm-hmm. I had this rant about the new world. Yeah. And, and now I look back, it was like, what the, what was I doing there? But it was on the mapping in the beginning, in the in the end of the movie, as already foreclosed possibilities. Right, right. So that's part of what I'm going to take it. up. But also, um, it's, it's actually is a very interesting history. But I'm going to write about the music score and, and also it's very much about, it's, I like it because, um, unlike Mark My Words, which is pretty much taking on 20th central century federal Indian policy, Mm -hmm. which is a little exhausting at times uh, for, as you can imagine, the historians became exhausting. Mm -hmm. Um, But I wanted to show that pattern and this is nice and closed. It's one film. um, But now I find I'm writing about the score, which is set to Wagner, which is really has interesting implications. Um, It's just actually really fascinating. And also, you know, the, the history of post, Pocahontas and that constant revisioning of that history and all these films, I'll be writing about that. So it'll be more than just about the new world, but the new world is only one part of this Pocahontas trope. And so what is that particular pull there? I'm even looking at this uh, short film from Boys in Love uh, called Twilight of the Gods, which also has Wagner. A lot of these have Wagner. It's really fascinating. Mm. So um, I'll be writing about that. So that that's my summer pro- into my I've been working on the research for that as I've been finishing this book. But then my next uh, big project is uh, on looking at the settler terrains, uh, uh, the visual terrains of settler colonialism. So thinking, what is it about the visuality that has also led to the this obfuscation of the, or the have led to the ways that uh, place, various places are seen as not native or, or are seen as integral to to uh, the production of the U.S. nation or Canadian nation. So I'll be looking at, um, I look at, I use Heiderdrich's work in National Monuments. So I'll be looking at effective uh, mapping in, in National Monuments and thinking about the effective mapping through the visual. And I look at Ahulea Sinajani's work and um, that part of that will be coming out um and theorizing Native Studies book in uh, spring 2014, and then I also I just went home and did a did work um, and did oral history work, which is my new, kind of I've been training my 
South Y went and got training and been working with how to do oral history, uh, perhaps in that preparation for that 12 Corners project. But uh, I went and interviewed my my uncle, Stonehorse Lone Goman, and around stories around about Niagara Falls. So I'm looking at that as a place of settler homo nationalism. And what does Niagara Falls mean as this weird honeymoon spot in the 1950s? So I'm going to be doing some work with that as well and look at postcards and things and how did the visual construct it in that particular way. So I'm underway on that project as well. So it's really exciting. Hopefully it all goes faster than this last one did. So it sounds like you're, you're basically not too busy, you know. Getting, <laughs> yeah, it's busy, but yeah. I, you know, maybe I'm a little lady. I like, I like looking at new things a lot. Um, but now I think I have more strategies with how to finish them faster. Great. <laughs> Well, Mishana, thank you so much for joining me today. I really appreciate it. Well, thank you. And thank you for having me on the show. And I really appreciate it as well. That was Mishana Goman, author of Mark My Words, Native Women Mapping Our Nations from the University of Minnesota Press and First Peoples, New Directions in Indigenous Studies. And this is New Books in Native American Studies. Check us out on iTunes, Facebook, Twitter, and at newbooksinnativeamericanstudies.com. For the New Books Network, I'm Andrew Epstein. Thanks for listening. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.